0: Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me this morning is one of my favourites, but don't tell him that, and one of your favourites, but I don't need to tell you that, it's Alex Good morning, Alex. Oh, stop. <laughs> so first up, it is unfortunately bad news when it comes to Brexit this week, isn't it? So can you talk me through what these new regulations are that are coming in and, well, how much they're going to screw stuff up?
1: Well, so this week's is the start of the government's uh, border target operating model, or BOTTOM for short. I mean, I, just, <laughs> I don't know who <laughs> thinks this stuff up. They didn't think of the acronym very closely. Um, so the the idea is that it will mirror the, the controls that the EU has for UK companies exporting food and plant things into they you, right? Uh, So from Wednesday, all imported plant and animal products will be categorized as basically low, medium or high risk. And anything seen as medium or high risk, which includes meat and dairy as well as most plants, flowers and things like that. So anything seen as high or medium risk will need a check from a plant health inspector or a vet before it can be transported across and the appropriate certification go with it. So that's step one that's coming in at the end of this month. Then step two is on the 30th of April, when these products will be physically checked at new border posts around the UK. So those are the two ratchet steps coming in. I mean, the fact that these checks, I think, mirror what UK companies have to do in order to export to the EU means that we do know a little bit of what the effect will be. And we have seen a drop of about 8 to 10% of this kind of export from the UK to the EU now that, you know, since the time it's had to face this kind of control. So maybe we we can expect to see an equivalent thing the other way. But more importantly than that, what we've seen in the UK is that loads of small and medium enterprises have given up on exporting to the EU altogether. And so I think that's going to be the big effect the other way around, that loads of small and medium enterprises in Europe that export specialist products to delis and places like that. So, you know, supermarkets that order massive containers all of one thing will be much less affected because actually they just need one certificate for a whole consignment of, say, prosciutto. Mm. But a small deli in your high street that, you know, orders from a small manufacturer in Italy or a farm shop in Italy that takes a little bit of cheese and a little bit of prosciutto and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, they will have to do like a separate certification for each thing contained in the order. And that tends to add huge costs so what what we tend to see in this situation is that the smaller operators just drop out of the market they just go we just can't afford to do this anymore so we will see companies in the eu saying we can't afford to export to you guys anymore sorry and we'll see small shops here basically either reduce their offering significantly or closed down. The more worrying aspect of this is that the Food Standards Agency did a report on this last year. It called it a food system strategic assessment and concluded that, and I quote, resources, manpower, and skills needed to enforce UK standards through inspections, testing, analysis, and reporting might be insufficient at present for the tasks required once full border controls come come in. And they continue to say that This is not only due to a lack of past investment in infrastructure and capacity building, but mainly due to shortages of medium to high-skilled labor that is unlikely to be resolved in the short term. So basically, we don't have the plant inspectors and the vets to do this, and the government has done nothing to resolve this. So we are walking into a little bit of a nightmare that, once again basically relies on companies to sort it out. The government is once again farming out its problems caused by Brexit to companies. It just says, well, you know, you go
0: out there and sort it. How are the Brexiteers going to try and spin this then, other than, you know, saying they think Delhi's awoke, so they don't really care? What's the, what they're going to suggest is the upside? I mean, they're going to play on the safety angle, they're
1: going to say that it's it's right to inspect the quality of stuff that comes in. They might hark back to the horse meat scandal. It will be around that. It will be based around the idea of safety. Of course, when we were in the EU, we all had the same safety standards and the border was an external one. It is again sort of going a long way and losing loads of stuff just to recover 10% of what we used to enjoy anyway. And that's the story with all Brexit
0: things, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean it sounds like the story of the Tories as well, losing loads of loads of voters and then doing horrible things to try and reclaim about 10% of them. <laughs> on that on that note, Sunak has has plenty to try and deflect from at the moment. But Jeremy Hunt, his old pal, who was brought in to be another Captain Sensible character is offering to help him out. What, you, what is he going to do?
1: Well, I mean, there's a fly in the ointment there, you know. There, so there were wide reports of a, a, a sort of independent assessment of the headroom, the much bullyhood headroom that the Chancellor has to give tax cuts in the spring budget. So there were talks of a 20 billion or just over that headroom. But on Friday, the Financial Times reported that the Treasury's own analysis shows it to be more like $14 billion, which is only just above the $13.5 billion Hunt had already put aside in the autumn statement. And so I think we'll have to wait and see the OBR's assessment, which won't happen until the very last minute before the budget, to know whether he does have headroom to give tax cuts or not. It may actually not be good news. I mean, they will magic something. They will do a bit of creative accounting in order to offer some bribes. They seem to have cooled on the idea of scrapping inheritance tax. I think they flew that kite and saw that, you know, it didn't play well with voters. And they now seem to be alighting on the idea of maybe doing something around stamp duty or maybe Doing something around the basic rate of tax. I mean, we'll see what he manages to do. In the meantime, the, the strategy seems to be you know, we are busy, 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 delivering, 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 too busy to bother with Westminster plots. And so today, Sunak is going up and down the country pushing the vape ban, basically.
0: Yeah, well, I saw I saw Kemi Badnock over the weekend saying, please, guys, stop talking about me replacing Sunak, because she definitely, definitely really doesn't (laughs) want that to doesn't want that to happen whatsoever. That seems very earnest from her. Are we going to see any more people kind of stick their heads out and say they want Sunak to go this week? Or do people who are actually serious about that kind of have to pretend they don't really want it to happen?
1: The latter, yes. They, you know, the the people who are serious contenders will have to pretend they don't want it to happen. I mean, it's interesting. On the vape ban, Liz Truss, former prime minister of a few weeks, issued a statement overnight <laughs> saying that, that she will vote against the smoking ban when it comes before the Commons, you know, because they're doing this thing where the age at which you can buy cigarettes will go up by one year every year that goes by to ensure that basically there's no new entrance into the cigarette market. And so, I think the the Conservative Party anticipated a backbench rebellion on that. At the same time, you have Labour saying that they will help Sunak with a smoking ban. And the last thing I think Sunak needs right now is to be seen to be helped by Labour because his own backbenches are too fractious. So that, you know, that won't play well. But in the meantime, they they will just continue with this just ludicrous uh, attack on, on Labour, you know, uh, they have no plan, 28 billion. I saw a quote by Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Laura Trott, saying Keir Starmer can't say how he would fund this dangerous 28 billion spending spree. I mean, <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, know, I know 28 billion sounds like a lot of money to people, but, you know, for context, from the government that took over a 0.9 trillion national debt in 2010, imposed austerity because they claimed it was unsustainable, and proceeded to triple national debt to 2.7 trillion by the end of this year or near enough. Now bleating about a vital infrastructure investment of 28 billion, it is laughable. And I am puzzled as to why media don't pull them up more on that. I mean, in the grand scheme of tripling our uh, state debt, from under a trillion to 2.7 trillion. This is a rounding error of a rounding error.
0: It it always sounds to me a little bit like you know in Austin Powers when Doctor Evil asks for a million dollars and then realizes it isn't all that much and that's the Tories now and they talk about billion it's just no like the money has inflated largely because of because of them at the moment
1: uh... just about (laughs) buy your flat in Zone One
0: now (laughs) looking at the, uh, the the Rwanda plan as well that's another thing obviously causing mm. plenty of problems for Sunak. Over the weekend, there were these reports, again, of how we've taken in Rwanda asylum seekers. Surely mm. this is going to make it impossible for them to to keep saying it's a really safe place to send people to.
1: And yet they will. They ran the Rwanda safety bill, so it gets a second reading in the Lords this afternoon. Incidentally, it is likely to pass because it's a second reading, right? Labour have said they won't op- oppose it at this stage because this isn't what the Lords do at this stage. They tend to speak, they tend to propose loads of amendments, they tend to propose loads of drafting changes and send it back, basically. So it will pass, but I think there will be a clear sense of the scale of opposition in the upper chamber, right? It will come back with a ton of amendments, to be voted on at a later stage. And there is a particularly smart one that basically delays the plan to potentially be beyond the election because it ties it into the Rwanda Treaty, which last week the Lords voted to delay until a sort of 10-point plan had been implemented to ensure that Rwanda is in fact a safe country. So what it's doing, it's saying you can't sign the treaty until you've gone through through this 10-point plan to ensure that Rwanda can deliver what the treaty asks it to deliver, and you can't pass the Rwanda safety bill until you've implemented the, the treaty. So it it ties these links to a chain and makes for a big delay which will probably mean it won't happen until after the election
0: finally on the domestic side of things so what is going on with with labor at the moment you know let us not be accused of being being biased and just focusing on the on the tories fuck ups what is happening with labor at the minute that we should look out for this week
1: so today starmer i think is visiting a branch of iceland talking about the cost of living which we know is people's top priority, but the hook is quite significant. So Richard Walker, who's the managing director of the Iceland supermarket chain, is announcing his defection to labor this morning because he used to be a a sort of a close pal to the Cameron um, regime and a significant donor to the Tory party. And... He has written a notepad in The Guardian and he's appearing on BBC Breakfast this morning to say that, you know, the Tories have failed on the cost of living, that it's putting an unbearable strain on families and that Labour is the right choice for communities across the country. That is quite a big thing. You know, losing big name, high profile former donors crossing the aisle directly to Labour that will have to hurt.
0: Moving on to world news now, what are the latest developments from conflicts in the Middle East? I mean, the big development is the attack in Jordan. There was a
1: drone attack on a a US military base in which actually three US personnel were killed and 25 people wounded. This comes from the sort of Iran-backed militias operating within Jordan. Joe Biden is saying, we shall respond, and is looking at various military options. Our own Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron, has tweeted to urge Iran to deescalate in the region. It's unfortunate, it was sort of inevitable, to give you an idea, there have been between 150 and 160 such drone attacks on US bases so far. And they've been very, very lucky that there has been no fatalities so far. And so I cannot imagine that the White, the White House will have been unprepared for this. They will have gamed this scenario fully. It's interesting that some Republican senators and Congress people are calling for a more fulsome response than we have seen on this, especially given the, the GOP's general stance on Ukraine in the Middle East has been probably a bit less hawkish than historically one might expect and more why we're we getting involved in all those wars over there, sort of Trumpian response. But we are now beginning to hear Republican voices urge Biden to get involved more fully in the Middle East conflict i mean the bottom line is military solutions are never enough there needs to be a diplomatic effort in parallel there needs to be we you know this sort of attack means that we must redouble our efforts towards a ceasefire rather than pull back from it together with pressure on Iran involving countries like Russia and China to dampen down its involvement because It feels to me a little bit like Iran has so far been allowed to get away with it. They've been fighting all these proxy wars through various, you know, Jordanian or Yemeni or Gazan proxy groups without any of it backwashing on them because everyone is incredibly conscious of contagion. Let's avoid contagion in the region, but maybe not tackling the source of the funding, the source of the aggression, the source of the weapons in the region is actually risking contagion. And maybe the time has come that the West needs to stand united against the actual source of a lot of this misery.
0: Turning to Europe now. So Finland had an election over the weekend, didn't it? How's that shaping up and what could it also mean in regard to Russia's stance towards that country?
1: Okay, so let me give you the headline. So the center-right candidate is ahead in the first round of the country's presidential election, and I would say he's probably favored to win because the third party in that presidential first run was the nationalist Hala Aho, who had about 20% of support. And... I would guess that much of that vote will go to the centre-right candidate. But, (laughs) okay, to put this in context, the centre-right candidate, Alexander Stubb, I mean, he is practically a socialist if you put him in in a UK context right? Mm. He's very socially progressive. He's very, very centrist, very pro-EU, you know, very pro-NATO. And so, actually, all nine candidates in that presidential election promised a really tough stance on Russia and are are pro-EU and pro-NATO. So, you know the contest is being fought in a completely different political landscape, and you know, I mean, Alexander Stubb, like I said, he makes he would make David Cameron seem like a far right nationalist in comparison. Hmm. Uh, so, so you know, yes, so the center right candidate will probably win the presidency, but the center right candidate in Finland is a very different creature to what one might imagine.
0: What's going on as well this week with with Hungary and Russia? There's some meetings going on, aren't there, that we could keep an eye on? Yeah,
1: so there is another round of negotiations coming up where there's a fear that Orban might veto military aid and, and money to fund the Ukrainian war effort, as he's been doing quite consistently and in, in sort of getting concessions out of the EU, and I think there is a running out of patience in that relationship. But interestingly, so the foreign ministers of Hungary and Ukraine are meeting today, Monday, and there's been a lot of mystery about that meeting. There is a hope that it will provide a little bit of clarity on whether Hungary will veto the 50 billion European Union support package um, that was supposed to be signed off last December and has been held up. And we will know more by the end of the day. But there is movement. I mean, that's all I can tell you right now is that there is movement in that region. There are some stories that Hungary might have its eye on a sort of region of Ukraine, a Western region of Ukraine that is seen as in part ethnic Hungarian and, you know, that some sort of deal is being discussed on that. But it's all very, very nefarious at the moment.
0: And finally, so over the weekend, it came out that Donald Trump was ordered to pay E. Jean Carroll over eighty million dollars in damages in regard to that defamation case going over in the U.S. So, it's in normal world, Alex. Obviously, this should really mean mean a lot, but politically, does it actually mean very much for Donald Trump?
1: Yes, it does. You know, it's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money, and remember that we also have. Judge Arthur Engeran is issuing his decision probably towards the tail end of this week, maybe next week, on the civil fraud case in New York, which has asked that Trump and his companies, this is what the other side is requesting. They're asking for 370 million in damages for misstating the value of, of uh, his business assets. And so there will be a judgment on that. And if you if you add the two together, they cause some financial difficulty to Trump. I mean, I know there's this perception that all these things help him politically and that he could crowdfund a, a bazillion in the blink of an eye, but it, it really isn't so. And so these two judgments put together, given the very strict rules about the commingling of funds. So, you know, Trump couldn't crowdfund paying for these judgments through election donations because there can't be that commingling of funds. And so he has to pay that out of his own pocket. And it might mean that he has to start selling some assets, which I think has a huge impact on his image, you know, his image as a successful business person and a a sort of, you know, a rich guy if he has to start selling stuff in order to fund these judgments, it be, he begins to look like a loser. Mm. And that is the one thing that that could be fatal to Trump's image. If his image begins to switch into that of a loser instead of a winner, because that is the ethic that he's imbued in his own support, right? that everyone else is a loser and I'm a winner. If he begins to look like a loser, this is a big problem for him. And then there's a second aspect, I think, of what happened last week that he will be very, very worried about. The judge in that case was incredibly effective in gagging him. So they were superb at agreeing with Trump's counsel exactly what he's going to be asked, making it very clear what the parameters are for him answering, that he can't relitigate constantly the facts of the case, which had already been decided, that he can't basically traduce the the woman that brought the suit against him because those facts had been decided. And he ended up taking the stand for four minutes So that judge was incredibly effective in dampening down the Donald Trump show. And that in many ways will have hurt him even more than the money judgment actually. Because what he wanted was his moment to shine and everything to be reported, what outrageous stuff he said in court, and he was denied it. And what's more, every other judge and every other prosecutor in every other of the 70-odd cases that are running against him will have been watching with great interest and taking notes on how to shut
0: him up. Well, I'm sure he'll make himself look like a really serious and successful businessman by selling loads of NFTs. So that's one way he'll get loads of money cobbled together, I'm sure. Alex, thank you as ever for joining me this morning. It's my pleasure, Joe. Listeners, if you enjoy The Bunker, remember that you can support us on Patreon. From £3 a month, you'll get episodes ad-free and early. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon podcast. We have five episodes every week, so at the very least, make sure you subscribe to the channel on your podcast app. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and thank you for joining us for Start Your Week
1: O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and
1: presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis and Alex Andreev. The producer was me, Jade Bailey, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.